Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. All right, are you ready to get serious now? Ready to get stuck into the Word? I haven't preached for five weeks as well, so you know I'm going to make the most of this today. Today I want to speak about the seven places from which Jesus bled for us. The seven places from which Jesus bled for us. There are a number of reasons I'm doing this. Number one, I felt last week, you know, it just occurred to me, we haven't had communion for a long time. As a church here on a Sunday. Now, I'm not one, you know, you can build a case for communion from uh, give us this day our daily bread, that communion is something you should do every day, all right? And, and many Smith Wigglesworth and many revivalists have done their communion on their own. You can build a case for that if you like. You can also build a case if you want to that you should only actually do communion once a year. Because it was at Passover where Jesus said, when you do this, do it and remember me. And Passover is a once a year thing. So if you want, you can build a case from the Bible to say, only do it once a year. And you can probably make a case for anything in between. The point is, I've got no policy as a pastor on when or how often we do communion or remember the Lord with bread and and juice um, together here on a Sunday. But when we do do it, I want it to be meaningful. Uh, You can make a case from Corinthians. The early church got together, they feasted and they ate together on the first day of the week well you can make a case to do it every week but you know what of all that spectrum of things i just say you can have communion anytime with anyone in any place that you like there's been a number of times we had friends over at our place we've had wine and cheese and and uh, with there's been bread on the table and we've thought let's do it right now we've got shiraz we've got bread let's have communion now let's just make this cheese bladder a communion meal we've done it at restaurants before We've just been sitting in a restaurant and we're just like, actually, let's get, let's get some bread and let's deliberately make this a communion opportunity. So communion is not just something we can do in a building that's somehow more holy than any other building around the place on a day of the week that's somehow more special or holy than any other day of the place. Communion is something you can do anywhere, anytime. If you want to do it every day, go for it. But at the end of the day, it is good for us as a church family, both as adults and with the whole congregation together as kids, we mix it up and we do communion on average possibly around uh, once a month. But it occurred to me last week, you know, we haven't done it for a while and I thought this week I want to make sure we have and share communion. The other reason I want to speak on this today is because in our Bible reading plan, that as I've read the Bible this year, I'm up to the Gospels and I'm ahead of everyone, so I've already read Luke, I've sort of read all four Gospels this month and I just have been struck again by the wonder of what Jesus did at Calvary. I thought, you know, I haven't preached on the cross for a while. And I'd like to do that today. And then the third thing was, of course, how every um, ex-gen person is led by the Spirit, is I saw something on Facebook. And um, (laughs) this week, Rob Rufus in, in Hong Kong posted a YouTube video and he did a teaching on the seven places Jesus shed his blood. And I just like the concept. I like, I like that concept. I'm going to take that and make it my own. So that's what I'm doing today. Now, for those of you who've been Christians for a while, you've been in church, you've read your Bible, you've, you've followed Jesus for a long time. The whole idea about talking about Jesus' blood is something that's probably a real beautiful thing for you. 
oh, Jesus' blood. Even the picture there of the thorns and the, and, and, and the bleeding crown, you're like, what a beautiful thing. But spare a thought for those of us here who are first-time church visitors or have only just come to know Jesus in the last couple of weeks or months. I mean, there are people here that have only just been walking with Jesus for, at least, uh, for less than three months. Spare a thought for those because talking about Jesus bleeding does sound a bit barbaric. And it does sound a little bit weird. And I just want to preface this with a, a bit of a caveat that, you know, we're about to read a scripture. I'm not going to do this very often, but I want you to open your Bible to the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and when we read scriptures like we're going to read today, we are reading something that is three and a half thousand years old. We are reading about something that happened in a completely different time, a completely different culture, in an economy that dealt and traded in blood. I mean, that sounds barbaric to our 21st century mind, but that's just how it was in much of the ancient world uh, three and a half thousand years ago. And probably the best way to modernise it, to take the edge of the barbaricness of talking about blood this morning, is to think, you know, I'm alive here today. Because when I was 16 and I had a car accident, I had an emergency crew rock up to that car accident and they pumped six bags of donated blood into my system. Somewhere, someone gave their blood and it saved my life. If I was asked for a show of hands, there would be a good number of us here today that could say, actually, someone's donated their blood to me too. And I was really grateful. So there's a modern example, okay, of actually saying, yeah, I believe in blood donation. Take something barbaric from three and a half years, a thousand years ago, give it a little bit of modernity. Okay, I get, I can, I can let my mind go there. So if you would bear with us, uh, we uh, are going to be looking uh, in and around this subject today. Have you found Leviticus? If you have your Bible, it's the third book in. I'm going to read uh, a very obscure passage of Scripture and maybe bring some insight into it today. The whole of chapter 13 and 14 of Leviticus deals with, again, a community from three and a half thousand years ago, and it talks primarily about skin conditions that people would have and how those people, particularly if those skin conditions were contagious, they'd be asked to leave the camp. Uh, in fact, in some cases, they'd be asked to wear something over their head, and any time someone got close to them, they'd have to shout out, leper, leper, keep away, keep away, and they'd be asked to sleep and stay outside of the the city, or that, that was a tent community, a nomadic community, so outside of the camp. The worst skin condition was actually leprosy, uh, because many skin conditions, of course, would heal on their own, but leprosy was one that could not be healed on its own, and that is why in the Bible there are a few cases where leprosy is actually specifically mentioned when God miraculously heals, like Miriam and Moses, God miraculously healed uh, leprosy. So leprosy in the Old Testament Hebrew mindset becomes equated with um, sin. Uh, only God can forgive sin and only God can heal leprosy. Other skin conditions are fine, they'll heal themselves, but only God can heal leprosy. And that's why for those of us who are reading the Gospels at the moment, you come across Jesus when he heals people with leprosy. Okay? In fact, it's the seventh miracle that he performed in chronological order healing a man with leprosy. In each of the Gospels, when he does that, he says to them, listen, now that I've healed you, you need to go to the priests and do what Leviticus 14 says to do. So he says, go to the priest, go and, and do what Leviticus 14 says, because Leviticus 14 makes provision for those who were outside the camp, who got their skin condition better, 
either just through natural healing or a miraculous healing like leprosy, which again never happened until Jesus came along. But this, they naturally got better and then this is the process that they would go through. Leviticus 14 verse 3. It says, The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. Just stop right there. The priest, knowing that there's a diseased person out there, is to get off his chair, walk out the camp, and go and approach that person. Some of us grew up with a really bad picture of God that said God and sin don't mix. So God could never be in the presence of someone who is sinful. No, no, no. God gets down off his throne. He comes out of his holy place and he goes to people who are in need. Like almost everything, that kind of concept of God comes from a bad misconception and then misquoted scripture. Because uh, it comes from Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 13, where Habakkuk is praying to God and he says, and he goes, God, surely your eyes cannot look upon evil. So that's what religious people quote. God's eyes can't look upon evil, so you can't be evil or God will look away from you. No, no, no. He, in the context, as he keeps going, he goes, surely your eyes can't look upon evil, so why are you looking upon those evil people and not doing anything about it? That's the rest of that verse. The whole concept is, it's not that God is too weak to be in the presence of sin. It's that God is so holy and, and desirous of sin to be cured that he can't just look at it and do nothing about it. God, your eyes can't just look at sin and do nothing. Your eyes will look at sin and do something about it. Habakkuk 1.13. So what does the priest do? He goes out of the camp and he goes to the person in sin. That is good news. This is the picture of the father that goes to hurt people. He is the one that has 99 sheep that are all safe, but he goes out of his way to look for the one that actually needs his help. God the father goes to hurt people. Let's keep reading. If they've been healed from their defiling skin disease, the priest shall, oh, here we go, shall order that two live birds and some wood, some scarlet yarn and hyssop, be brought for the person to be cleansed. The priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He then is to take the live bird and dip it, together with the wood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times... He'll sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce 